I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of Trade Guys, we talk about the government shutdown's impact on trade, WTO reform, and the overall slowdown in global trade. All that and more on Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. It's good to be back. Lovely fall weather here in D.C., although we're starting to get some strong winds of a government shutdown. Funding for federal agencies will apparently run out at midnight on the 30th of September unless Congress votes to pass appropriations bills to finance the government for next year. So, Trade Guys, how did we get here? And can you tell us about how government shutdown would affect trade and economic-related government agencies. Well, look, we get here quite often these days. I happen to think it's a function of the voters' preference for divided government, which every time we get a unified government where the both houses of Congress and the White House are in the same party, the next election cycle, the voters undo it. So uh, it's something they prefer about that, and that leads to tensions that often get resolved in some or a brinksmanship or another. I would just say, as somebody who lives outside the Beltway, in fact, 250 miles outside the Beltway at this point, I had an opportunity to go to Washington last week for a couple of days, and it was a quiet town. I was wondering if anybody would notice when the government actually did shut down. And then today I read that the Government Accountability Office, I almost called it its old name, the General Accounting Office, but the GAO put out a study of the uh, federal headquarters building usage. Turns out 17 of the federal headquarters buildings in Washington have less than 25% capacity in terms of the number of employees who can have offices there versus the ones who are coming to work. So a lot of people are still working from home or whatever. I found Washington pretty quiet. But be that as it may, it will get quieter if there is a shutdown. I can think of three of note. Uh, they do they do happen. In 1995, there was one that was, I guess, almost three weeks or roughly speaking, three weeks over budget issues. At that time, it was Speaker Newt Gingrich, whose career went into a pretty sharp decline after that shutdown, and President Bill Clinton, who I think used the shutdown as part of his reelection campaign in, 20, in 1996. So the, then the second one I recall was the so, so-called sequester negotiations in uh, 2013, which was early in the second term of President Obama. It lasted 16 days. That one actually produced a result in terms of spending reductions that held together surprisingly well. Then there was an even longer shutdown with uh, President Trump in 2018 uh, over my, over immigration issues. And it's funny because when you're in Washington, there's there's always there's always theater. There's a big buildup, okay, and uh, all the bad things that are going to happen. And then there's a TikTok. There's a there's a uh, sort of a process drama that plays out in the media that they follow it all and they create some villains and and heroes out of it. And then at the end, everybody goes back to work and federal workers at least all get back pay and we act like nothing happens. So I, I think there are more policy problems than that would indicate, but that's the typical rhythm of these things. And so I just hope we wind up getting something. But Bill, I'm sure you, you've looked at the internals of this and uh, there are some deadlines we're likely going to miss. 
I'm a veteran or a victim of the 1995 shutdown because I was in the government at the time. And I was one of the people that had to show up being a political employee. And my main recollection of it was it was really boring because you had to be, I had to be there, but there was nothing to do. It was what is now called BIS. It was BXA then, but you know, that's a, an agency that has a line of authority. Our job was to issue export licenses or deny them as the case may be. And that all grinds to a halt, you know, because the people that do that aren't there. And there's a lot of sitting around. And I think we're going to see that again this year. And I, there will be effects from the standpoint of employees. They end up being held harmless for the most part because they get back pay. And, you know, the status quo ante is restored at, at some point. In this particular case, I think it's it's unusually frustrating because while it's the, the product of, of sharp policy differences between the parties, it's also a product of basically reneging on a deal. The two parties made a deal in May to extend the debt limit, and the deal they cut contained targets for uh, ceilings on future spending for two years, and both parties signed off. The debt limit was extended. And now we find a, a small group of House Republicans basically are moving the goalposts and don't want to honor the deal that their leadership made five months ago. Um, yeah, well, four months ago. That makes the issue kind of extra difficult because it's not just a policy difference. It's also an issue about keeping your word and whether deals that you cut are, have any validity. You know, if you cut a deal and then within weeks, you're... Uh, the person who did it, in this case, the speaker, is no longer in a position to maintain it. It calls into question his credibility for you know future agreements and future deals. So I'm kind of aggrieved about this. I, I think it doesn't bode well for the the functioning of, of the institutions. You know, you ought to at least if you're going to make a deal, you ought to stick to it. But they haven't done that. In the case of trade, it comes at a particularly bad time because there's a lot of balls in the air right now and. You can argue about whether they're big balls or small balls. And if you listen to the podcast, we would say uh, there's a lot of small balls there, like IPEF and other things. But if you think about what has to be closed out relatively soon, one way or the other, it's not a short list. At the top is GASA, you know, the uh, Green Global Agreement on Sustainable Steel and Aluminum, which we're negotiating with the EU. We have a self-imposed Halloween deadline to do that. And we're in the end game. And uh, not only are we in the end game, there's an EU-US summit announced for October 20th, where this will certainly come up. If they can't get ready for that, if they can't set the stage, clear away a lot of the small debris and leave the principles with big issues, they're going to have to kick the can on the whole agreement, which is either that or that risk tariffs being reimposed, which nobody wants. So there's that. There's also the APEC summit coming up in early November, and that has to be prepared for. That's not just USTR. That's also primarily the State Department. But a lot of activity there and a lot of planning is going to have to sit on the sidelines during a, sh a shutdown. That also happens to be the time when the government wants to conclude as much of the IPEF as it can. And there's another negotiation in Malaysia in October scheduled. If the shutdown continues, our negotiators won't be able to go. They won't be able to travel. And uh, even if they could travel, uh, they won't be able to engage government functions uh, while they're there. So this endangers, including uh, IPEF. I mean, you could argue that that wasn't going to happen anyway, but it means certainly that if the thing is 
you know, if, if the shutdown is more than a few days, that's it's going to throw a major wrench into including IPEF, into APEF, into a GASA conclusion. And also, it has a lot of implications on the enforcement side. If you're in BIS or in Treasury, OFAC, doing sanctions work, you're not going to be able to do that. You know, the uh, USTR contingency plan for the, every agency has a plan for, if this happens, here's what we're going to do. And I gather the USTR plan leaves 14 people in, in place in the entire agency, which is mostly the, you know, the senior and political appointees. That's not enough to do any of the things I just described. BIS will leave a handful in place, which means in, enforcement activities are going to slow down, which is a, a big issue right now on export controls. In addition, you've got the anniversary of the October 7th rules coming up, and there's a wide expectation that the administration will try to finish finalizing that rule before the year is up, because it would be a little embarrassing if they didn't. And that's now in jeopardy. And there's an immediate impact on that, because one element of that rule, which actually followed a couple of days later, was the waiver for Korean companies Samsung and SK Hynix, to continue their fab work in China. That was a one-year waiver that expires October 11th. It's been publicly reported in multiple places that the administration intends to extend that waiver and extend intends to, the most recent report was that it intends to extend it indefinitely. But if there's a shutdown, they won't be able to do that. They can't publish the rule that does that. And that has a lot of implications for those two companies. Now, there's the possibility that they'll scramble to try to get that done in the next two or three days, because if there's a shutdown, it won't be until midnight Saturday. So the other thing you could be sure of is people are going to be really busy between uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of the, the end of September to try to get as much out the window as they can. But I think if you're thinking about the, the trade agenda going forward, this is going to put a significant crimp in it if, if it lasts more than a couple of days. Thank you for the uh, overview, guys. Uh, let's switch gears and talk about, admittedly, a bit of a shameless plug, although I think it's important for the topics relevant to this podcast. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai and WTO Director General Dr. Ngozi came to CSIS last week to give us a joint State of the Trade World address and participate in the discussion of some of our scholars. Trade guys, can you tell me about what you thought, what they said during the event? Well, I think that Ambassador Tai said a lot of the th same things that she said before. It, it ended up being a conversation where there was a lot of talk about WTO reform. Ostensibly, the event was about development and development and the WTO. And I think Dr. Agozi talked about that. But the questions for Ambassador Tai really focused on WTO reform, which is becoming, uh, it's been a big issue for a while, but it's becoming bigger because there's an effort underway to try to come to some conclusion on on that in time for the 13th ministerial conference, which will be the end of February in 2024. And she said that, you know, it would be a worthy goal to reach an agreement on, on the dispute settlement part, which is where a lot of the reform is focused, what to do about dispute settlement, what to do about the appellate body, which is, as, as all of our faithful listeners know, is in abeyance. It's contrary to what, I, what some press people did, said, who put the, the entire blame for that on President Trump, that's a little bit unfair. It really was started in the Obama administration. We started objecting to appellate body appointees then. I mean, Trump put the final nail in the coffin and 
and, and killed the appellate body off. But this has been brewing for a long time. I mean, if you go back in history, there were people in the United States when this system was set up in 1993 and 1994 who said, you know, we'll be sorry. It's not going to work the way you think it's going to work. And it ended up not working the way we thought it was going to work in the sense that the appellate body tended to, on increasing numbers of occasions, go off on its own and essentially make new law where the expectation of the United States and others had been that the appellate body would simply interpret what the members of the WTO had agreed to uh, in the Uruguay round, and that it was a question of interpretation, not of addition. So the appellate body is gone, which leads to the question of, so what do we do now? Uh, Because technically, the dispute settlement process exists. People are still complaining, uh, filing complaints. There are still panels that are adjudicating the complaints, the first level of the dispute settlement process. So there are winners and losers. But if you don't like the outcome, you still have the right to appeal, despite the fact that there's no place to appeal because there are no appellate body members. The appellate body is non-functional. So that's referred to now as appealing into the void. And what that means in practice is if you file an appeal, and the US has done that in a number of cases, and China has done that in a number of cases, most recently the one they lost on their retaliatory tariffs against, against us, if you do that, basically it allows you to keep on doing the bad thing you were doing. So the consequence of the demise of the appellate body is, you know, the sinners keep on sinning. I think the um, kind of the we I sort of understand it, but the weakness in the American position is that if we say we want to reform, we say we want to fix everything. We have not yet put forward any specific concrete proposals to do that. We've made a bunch of ideas but we have not re- exactly put forth a like a text or an agenda. In a way, that's not surprising for those of you that know how the WTO works. There is a tendency for the many, many smaller countries to view anything the U.S. proposes on any issue as suspect. And uh, I think USTRs have learned over the years that an overt public USTR position on something is the kiss of death. If you want to make sure that position doesn't get adopted, you know, the U.S. should announce its support for it. The result of that is that historically, the USTR has tended to work through other smaller countries. So you get proposals from allied friendly countries that we can quietly support, but they have somebody else's name on them. So I'm not really surprised that the U.S. has not put out a thing there that says this is what we ought to do on on dispute resolution, because they know if they did it, you know, 34 countries would immediately object to it. However, you know, as the ministerial conference approaches and the discussions continue to flounder around with multiple ideas, what is missing here is leadership. And the U.S. has a long history in the WTO of providing leadership. Sometimes it's like what Obama said, leading from behind uh, or leading with other people out in front, but it's still leading. And what seems to be missing here is more concrete leadership from the Americans about what they would like to see happen. Would you like to see a second layer, an appellate layer on top of the panels? Would you like to see just the panels? I mean, that's the way it used to be. Before the Uruguay round, there'd be a panel report and uh, that was final. And if you didn't like it then, of course, you could object. And in the absence of consensus amongst the now 164, the panel report would not be adopted. And that's why we put the appellate, that's why we revised the whole system 
in the first place because the United States, among others, was tired of winning in the 80s and early 90s and then having nothing happen because the loser would uh, object to adopting the panel report. Now, you know, the cynics would say, uh, we've discovered that since we are now the losers in a number of cases, it's convenient for us not to be subject to discipline. USTR denies that that's a motivation. So I am not going to make a judgment about what's right about that. But what does seem to be clear is that we are not trying to focus everybody's energy in a particular direction, which makes me worried that we're not going to get to the finish line on reform by the time of the ministerial conference. Well, uh, look, I'm glad that the WTO still has sufficient institutional respect because I think it's a great organization and for a long time was the probably demonstrably the most effective international organization. But I remember a conversation that I had in Geneva back in the halcyon days of uh, the Doha development agenda. And I think it was the Mexican ambassador, their permanent representative, their Geneva ambassador, who said uh, in response to a conversation about about uh, the WTO being an institution, he said, it's not an institution, it's a table. And what he meant by that is the core function of this organization is to support negotiations among the parties. And the WTO is at its best and it advances most constructively when the big traders have issues that they want to work with each other and they start negotiating. So. Look, I think Ambassador Tai said all the right things. Uh, and I think the Director General said all the right things. And so did the President when he went to uh, the UN, as far as, that's, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But it's not saying, it's doing. And uh, I, I agree with Bill's point on leadership. We've regrettably been running on fumes since about 2008. That was both the collapse of the Doha development agenda or the cessation of meaningful action on it and the global financial crisis. And as a result, we've had roughly 15 years of, of muddling through. Uh, and if you want to do something about that, then the big traders have got to get together and agree on an agenda and start moving forward. And most importantly, start talking. So uh, I hope we can get there at some point and not just say the right things. So let's move into the last thing we wanted to discuss today. We're starting to get some global economic analysis and it's spelling some trouble for global trade numbers. World trade volumes are falling at their fastest annual pace for almost three years in July, according to closely watched figures. So Scott, can you tell us a bit about these latest world trade numbers? Sure. Yeah, there's a there's a terrific work done by the, the Dutch, who have, of course, have a, a centuries long tradition in in maritime uh, transport and, and uh, maritime commerce. The Netherlands Bureau for Economic Policy Analysis puts out a what's called the World Trade Monitor. And they are, it's one of the more accurate guides to actual goods movements in many aspects. And it's some of the most reliable data you can get. Well, the most recent report showed a substantial decline a month versus year ago. Theobald, you had it right. It's the largest decline in total global trade goods, goods trade volume since the COVID pandemic. And it, it was very broad-based. So uh, the our readers can can find the report, and it's pretty gloomy all around. But I think what the way I interpret it, at least, is that we've been going through this fog really ever since the shutdowns in 2020 related to COVID. And this is an evidence of the fog clearing. And now that we're seeing the terrain without the fog, it looks pretty rough. And I actually think that's the fact. 
so why do, why do I talk about the COVID fog? Well, in that three years since the shutdowns began in 2020, three things happened. One is there was massive fiscal stimulus. Many of it, and so many institutions were were kept afloat, and and uh, global liquidity was was kept in place through fiscal stimulus. Uh, the United States had the biggest ones, but almost everyone who could afford to do it did it uh, to keep their economies going. Uh, second, we had a policy for a long while, at least a year, of shutting down a lot of services business, which shifted consumer spending from services to goods and created the boost in goods trade and the many of the supply chain bottlenecks that arose immediately after that. The third thing is that we had a monetary policy near the zero bound. Global interest rates were roughly speaking zero. All three of those things have changed. The fiscal stimulus has, has dried up. Monetary policy obviously is tightening substantially uh, in the face, face of inflation and services are back. And, and so I think the economy is looking more like it did in 2018 and 2019. But even back to 2018, 2019, there were warnings from important groups like the OECD who were seeing the, the coming decline in trade volumes because of, of open markets basically losing political, political support and a lot of domestic initiatives that tended to disrupt open markets. So the politics shifted maybe five years ago, and we're now seeing the result more clearly because of that intermediate effect that that wasn't really predictable and couldn't be used reliably. So, so I'm kind of gloomy about this, and but I think it's, I think we got about what we bargained for. When you start when you start to restrict trade, when you start to incentivize domestic content over foreign content, and stop working on actions that open markets, you get a trade result like this, and it's bad for consumers. It's bad for overall economies. It's only the beginning. So, but not. I don't think it's a, it's anything to celebrate there. One of the things we'll be spending, I think, more time on in a separate episode later on is sort of companion data to this that suggests that while global trade is down, it is particularly down in trade between, I guess, geopolitical spheres. U.S.-China trade, for example, is down. But trade within geopolitical spheres amongst friends and allies, for a better term, uh, lack of a better term, is up. So uh, there's an overall decline, but there's also reorganization going on. One of our colleagues that we've talked about before, actually has been on the podcast in the past, Ed Gresser, has referred to this as, as clustering. And I think um, it'll. we need to study this a little bit more to, before we can say something definitive about it. But I think it's a product not only of sort of uh, macroeconomic changes that Scott was talking about, but also companies, you know, revisiting their supply chains and dealing with uh, the vulnerabilities that are being revealed in those supply chains, uh, which might be political. That is, China wanted to shut them down or something, but could also be an earthquake or a monsoon or hurricane or things like that. And so you've got companies working pretty hard to figure out how to how to defend themselves against a variety of newly understood contingencies. I mean, they've been there all the time, but now suddenly people are focused on them. And one way you do that is you create redundant capabilities so that if an earthquake in China prevents you from getting what you need, you've got somewhere else you could go to get it. So your whole production line doesn't stop. And when you do that, you tend to do that closer to home. And that's an interesting phenomenon that I think needs more explanation to the extent to which that's going to continue. Because the other side of the argument 
and a counter to what Scott said. And I'm not sure that I believe it, but the other side of the argument is that a lot of what he's talking about really is related to the troubles in the Chinese economy, which is slowing down significantly, which has knock-on effects elsewhere. Demand, you know, it's one of the reasons it's slowing down is because global demand is slowing down in part because of inflation. But as factories produce less there, then that affects supply as well. So people that are uh, whose business depends upon sales to China are finding those things declining because the Chinese economy is slowing down. If you think that that's a temporary condition and that growth is going to pick back up again, then you just have to you know hang on for the ride and you know get ready for the recovery. If you think it's a structural change rather than a cyclical one, then you have a, a much more serious problem to deal with. And I think I think we don't know the answer to that right now. It certainly is beginning to look, unlike what we said four or five months ago, it's beginning to look like not a blip, but a trend. This is not a couple months of data now. We've got you know, eight months of data for this calendar year. And the trends that Scott was talking about are pretty clearly developed, and it looks like they're going to hang on for a while. So I think the short-term outlook uh, is gloomy on a number of areas, but I think you can also make the case that the tools of globalization, which are both enormous cost reductions and enormous technology advances in in transportation and communication, the tools are all still there. And we haven't uninvented containers. We haven't uninvented digitization of the economy. That all continues. And so I think it's going to come back but it may come back in uh, much more of a regional form than we've seen before. And that's something that I think we're going to be talking about more in the future. Is that part of the French shoring trends that uh, DC is talking about recently? Yes, although they're not always friends. Nearshoring might be a better term because that I think companies are concluding that proximity has advantages. If you And the obvious case in North America is located in Mexico. You don't have ocean shipping problems. I mean, there's always border issues, but moving your truck across the border in, in many ways is simpler than an ocean freighter coming from Shanghai and then having to wait outside of Long Beach for whatever the waiting period of that particular month is, or or the, the challenges of going through the, the Panama Canal where transit has been slowed down because of drought. Levels are lower, and if you got a really big ship that you know clears the canal by you know a couple feet on each side. There's a waiting period now that's gotten a lot longer because of uh, low water. So if you want to avoid all that stuff, you think about the guy next door. Yeah, no, Bill's right. Particularly as China ages and its working age population shrinks, this drives a lot of investigations on you know where do I source now? And when oil costs go from you know forty or fifty dollars a barrel to a hundred, which is what we're headed toward now, being nearby. Starts to make sense now. Sometimes, in, in the case of the United States, Mexico is very well positioned geographically, but building those networks of production networks will take a lot of capital. So the, the, it's the, none of it's for free, uh, and a lot of and it takes a lot of time to to play out. I, I think if that's what the future looks like in terms of of generally higher energy costs, generally needs for alternatives for production at scale, that uh, we're going to see more of this in the future. Well, guys, thanks as always for a great episode. Hope you have a good week and I'll see you later. We'll be back next week. Thanks. To our listeners, 
If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.